Gregory Jabara is a Tony Award-winning stage actor with an impressive career spanning over four decades. On Broadway, Gregory has starred in renditions of Chicago, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, and Billy Elliot, which earned him the 2009 Tony Award for Best Featured Actor in a Musical. Since departing from the stage, Gregory has spent 10 seasons alongside Tom Selleck in the CBS drama Blue Bloods. Gregory Jabara, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you, Mia. Um, so we're speaking on the occasion. Well, everything is now in a little bit of a lockdown. We're just having all this drama. I like to bring that in because I think, you know, it's it's an interesting time for actors. How are you finding it, you and your cast members? Did you finish on Blue Buds in the middle of um, filming? or? Yeah, we, we actually were uh, in the middle of shooting our... The 20th episode, yeah. And uh, we were two days shy of uh, principal photography, so it did not get completed. Yeah. Uh, when they, because we closed down the 15th. So we didn't finish the season, mm -hmm. and we also don't know if there will be another season because mm -hmm. we're, you know, CBS waits and makes that decision. So other than uh, falling short by two episodes, which for me means I came home. I mean, I, I go home, I shoot two episodes in New York, then I come home to Los Angeles for about two weeks. And I go back to New York, shoot two episodes, come home. So uh, I, I'm, I'm missing out on the income and the time in New York City to shoot the last two episodes, but this is basically the time that I'm home with my family for about a three-month hiatus. Mm -hmm. So um, the great thing for me is it's not very different than what I would normally be doing at this time of my life, a little more. Uh, confined uh, uh -huh. to the home, but I am the cook when I'm home, and uh, it's just it's different to have our college, our oldest college student son back home. Uh -huh. uh, so all of us under one roof is kind of nice, uh -huh. uh, actually, you know, just for peace of mind for everyone's safety. But my my mind is really really surrendered the whole work thing, and I'm just um, really focusing on No, it's interesting, and I think that in terms of it's made us all, if one can focus on the positives, appreciate what we value the most, what we really treasure, because you have to make those decisions and you realize how much of one's life is spent when you have a very you know, rich working life and you have a great family there. My wife and I have both come to realize and appreciate that the fact that the majority of the last 10 years we, we do spend a lot of over you know, so many months we do spend a lot of time away from each other and the family that we end up appreciating each other more. But the, the, but the work itself, um, I find, I'm, I'm finding myself doing things I've never done before. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty socially connected. I, I'm into the, the, the social networking and being a part of uh, the fan groups that, are, that support the TV show, the Blue Bloods, currently. Um, but I, I'm, I'm now looking for opportunities to wrangle fellow castmates together. We do live feeds. We mm -hmm. just to kind of stay connected to the fan base and kind of remind ourselves how lucky we are for the jobs and the fortunes we've had up to this point. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I literally, the, the Juilliard School, uh, of which I'm a, a graduate directing program, they offer on Wednesdays a meditation class. And I joined that for the first time yesterday. Mm. Just to sort of um, reconnect, Moni Akim, who is one of our uh, one of the movement teachers and directors there at the Juilliard program, uh, runs this meditation, and it was really uh, beautiful to be able to share that space with um, with a mentor of mine mm. from thirty five years ago. Hmm. Uh, have I? I think I haven't actually really other than electronically, digitally, email, and or the occasional reaching out when I went to see something that he directed at the school. But it was the first time I'd really held space with his class. Mm -hmm. uh, that, and then there were many alumnus that were uh, participating, many of whom um, I, I know. Mm -hmm. and, and it was it was beautiful, and uh, it, it uh, kind of awakened 
um, um, awareness and surrender that I had sort of lost uh, memory of that mm-hmm. was sort of a part of what you did when you were in class at school. It was really, it was great. And I look forward to continuing that on, you know, uh, on a weekly basis. But I, like after my time with you today, I'm doing a master class for a friend who teaches at TCU. Uh, so there's a lot of opportunity to stay thanks to modern technology. And I want to speak about, you know, other families. You're talking about your television family. You spoke, um, I think, notably, you won the, the Tony for playing the dad and Billy Elliot. You spoke about your time at Juilliard. But speak a little bit about Billy Elliot and how that came about. I think this is in between your television work that's fortuitously. Yeah, I, I would say Billy Elliot was kind of the end of a, about a 15-year run of doing strictly Broadway shows. Mm-hmm. Primarily, my income was being uh, as a stage actor. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and it would have continued, mm-hmm. you know, had, you know, blue blood not fallen into my lap, mm-hmm. you know, at a perfect time. Uh, 22 years ago, my wife and I moved out here to Los Angeles from New York after we married. And the majority of my work, ironically, mm-hmm. after moving to L.A., when I was thinking it was time to really develop my TV and film credentials so that I could be cast in leads back in New York because I really... That's the reality of the, just the business aspect of working on Broadway is if you've got a big TVQ or you're a movie star, chances are people are going to invest in you to lead a role, lead a Broadway show because you're a much better investment. So it was I was I had a place in my career after played, playing several wonderful leading roles on Broadway, but it was time to go and get some more cred so I can come back and do more theater. I mean yeah. that really was a logic. So we were in L.A. and um, at a, financially at a really dire time and realizing that um, I had to put my hat in the ring for another Broadway, any Broadway job, just to try and get it, just have some income. And um, Billy Elliot was just really with a, if you want to just talk the business aspect mm-hmm. as opposed to the creative aspect, um, just before Billy Elliot, I had done Dirty Rotten Scoundrel. And I was wooed by the uh, producer. Uh, he said, "Look, this is a really great opportunity for you to get a to get a, a award recognition, which is you know a, a phenomenal opportunity to help advance one's career if you're award-winning or award-nominated actor. You know, it's, it's something that goes in bold type on the resume and that people notice and um, helps set you apart from others." And I did chase that job at Dirty Rotten Scoundrels because I went, oh, this could be it. It was one of the, who was it? Lithgow, Lithgow, but Sherry Renee Scott, Sarah Gemmelfinger. So it was it was one of the top, you know, handful of elite of characters. And it was, I went, oh yeah, great, let's do this. But it was a new musical. Um, my character did not end up being in terms of like the field for that season the reality was there were other supporting actors and musicals that had much more amazing performances the, mm-hmm. just the demands of the roles they were I, I, I was not in the mm-hmm. top five of car- people that should be considered because there were people that were just doing much more amazing things demanded of me as an actor I ended up not being in the mix for award uh, contention because it was there were variables that were out of my control but when Billy Elliot came along the benefit of considering that job was, and, and I had to throw myself at that job, the casting directors did not think I was right mm-hmm. for the role of the father. Uh, they, they only re- they remembered me from my role at Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which was very, was very different than what they perceived the father in the show needed to be. And they didn't, you know, that, that, it was that simple. They, just, they went, no, Jawar is not right. So then, of course, I'm going to do everything I can to show them that I'm the right guy for the role. But it also meant re- the, the show had already opened on the West End, uh, and, and it was still running. The show had opened and run for a year in Australia, and the role of the father was nominated for their top awards in both markets. And I, so from a business standpoint, I'm going, oh, this would be a worthwhile risk chasing this job because it's already proven itself that this role is something that is worth the attention. So. Just from a business standpoint, that's what made me want to throw everything at this and um, asking my agent to get me an audition because they weren't interested in seeing me. Mm-hmm. 
uh, ultimately, you know, it's a long story about the audition process, but, you know, they gratefully saw what I saw in terms of me being the right guy and, you know, uh, three years of employment in probably the most up personally affecting and gratifying job I've ever had as an actor. Mm-hmm. And and gratefully, all the award recognition that you dream of having come with it. So, mm-hmm. And then that job gave me, you know, put me in a, under a spotlight that when Tom Selleck came back to New York with his new TV show, he said, I want Greg Jabara, my old buddy Greg Jabara, to come work with me again. So, you know, that's kind of like the dream trajectory, you know. I have to say you have a great year. I mean, because I know England, and I just thought, wait a minute, I said, this actor, I thought, I thought I'm interviewing. I thought I'm interviewing an American. I just couldn't believe it. Oh, that's very nice. Spot on. Yeah. 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 Well, they, you know, they 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 cracked the whip on that. Actually, with Billy Elliot, and in the West End production, the Geordie dialect. It's hard. Regional dialect. It is very hard, but it's also they on the West End they do it much more um, uh, specific. They they actually, uh, it's a thicker, more accurate dialect mm-hmm. but the Brits are used to hearing it so they can understand it mm-hmm. we had to actually water it down for the American audiences because if we've really done that authentic Geordie accent you might as well have run subtitles because mm-hmm. Americans you know wouldn't be able to keep up with oh I thought it was so, very authentic um it like yeah of course it's like you know someone has a Geordie you know I know like Geordie people who like live in Paris here so then they you know modify it because they do want to be understood right. yeah yeah, right, right, exactly. So that that was definitely done. But I, I do, I do. Uh, the, the, actually, the Jordy accent was a huge part of the audition process. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually you had to spend an hour with the dialect coach um, before they even considered seeing you because they were having such frustration with American actors mm-hmm. watching the movie of Billy Elliot, and the dad was Scottish. The actor mm-hmm. who played the dad in the movie was Scottish and didn't work as well, hard on his Geordie accent. Mm-hmm. So Americans are all going, okay, there's our, there's our template. We sound like mm-hmm. him, we're going to be golden. And the creative team is going, no, you should all sound like Scotsman. And I was like, well, we're, I'm doing what was in the movie. But yeah, but he, was, he, was, he wasn't doing the, a really good Geordie. So it was mm-hmm. like, so they ended up, and they, they literally beating their heads against the because nobody was coming in with a Geordie accent. They're all sound, you know, Scottish. So... He had to spend an hour with the dialect coach, and he had to go, yep, this actor has the facility to do this. Now we can invest the other hours, many hours of time, going working with them through the callback process. Yeah, and having that authenticity, I mean, for then, it's so important because then you will really understand from Billy's point of view. It's not, you know, the Geordie uh, uh, culture is not like one, it's not the region one thinks of when one thinks of dance, or classical dance, or anything. So no, you have to see no, the, that Neanderthal contrast. Man, <laughs> LA, no, no it, it, right, it helps. It, it definitely helps support the struggle. And I grew up in uh, suburban Detroit and, mm-hmm. you know, a very middle class, working class. Mm-hmm. Um, environment. So I, as an adult now, taking on that role. When I first saw the movie, I can remember identifying with Billy's journey mm-hmm. as an actor. Right. Because being an actor was not in the cards, according to my parents. They wanted me to have a degree in something where I could feed myself. But mm-hmm. as a father, as a husband, um, but with the knowledge of who the men were that you know nurtured my uh, formative years, I, I knew who that man was. So. Uh, gratefully, that, that helped me. It was actually a tribute to my father, really, mm-hmm. my performance. It really was in terms of the real desire and mm-hmm. love for their child, but the inability to grasp what this is about. That's so nice when you can touch on this kind of sense and mem- memory and give a, a bit of a tribute, and so that the audience kind of can get that. It's just these little nuances, but you—it me—it's your history. It's lovely to draw. Yes, yeah. I—I have—I uh, I have several hundred cousins. My father was the youngest of sixteen children wow. on the Lebanese side of the family. Mm. My mom is just one of three sisters on the Irish side. But yeah. cousins that would come to the show, men especially of my age, would go, "Oh man, that was—that was Uncle Jack. That was Uncle Bill. That was." They said, "You—you you just." Pay tribute to the to our fathers. And I went. Uh, mm-hmm. Isn't that great? 
And that was that meant the world to me because it really was. It was like, yeah, it wasn't. I just it was in my DNA. Yeah. No, it's nice. It's it's really nice. Well, that's what comes with. I imagine I don't have that acting experience, but when you really prepare it and you just have it, and it almost I don't know, it could be like not sleepwalking, but it's when it becomes such a part of you, and that's just a lovely thing to watch the magic. And, and a beautiful thing to experience. Yeah. Also, that particular job, eight times a week, was also a milestone for me in terms of really developing the facility for. Uh, recreating such emotional depth, eyes and love, mm-hmm. effortlessly, eight times a week for three years. That was something that was new. Mm-hmm. And that that was also a wonderful, um, validating experience. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you hadn't been shying away from demanding roles. I mean, you're also in Chicago, yes? Yes. Yeah, but that wasn't demanding. That was just like a gift. <laughs> I mean, probably one of the best entrances ever in a musical to have, you know, six scantily clad women undulating on the floor with feathers fans chanting your name. Yeah, no, that was, that was, that, that was also the job. That was, that was my last Broadway job. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we moved to Los Angeles because after that, I was only being seen for leading roles. Mm-hmm. But I was, I was, I wasn't getting cast. They were casting people who were more famous mm-hmm. for the jobs that I was auditioning for. And I went, okay, all right, I have to, I have to make myself more recognized but mm-hmm. I can come back and work again. And for you, I mean, I know you love the television work, but your love is real, your first love remains the theater. Oh, it's, the, it's my favorite place to work. Mm-hmm. Because uh, simply, uh, every night, you are, you receive confirmation from the audience who is the other half of the work equation, mm-hmm. that you are being successful in your storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that happens every single night with a new audience every single night. And really as an actor, that's, that's the work is going, I'm gonna be a storyteller and I want, I'm, I, I, I need to know that I'm successful taking you on the ride. That's my job and that's, that's what I need to know, whether it's applause, whether it's laughter, whether it's silence, but ultimately it really comes down to am I being successful telling this story and taking you on this journey? And you can do that every night, live theater. In film and television, you lose the gratification of that visceral, immediate experience, the give and take that is your success as an actor. That goes away because you're working, you, know, you do great work, but you don't know if it, because then it gets manipulated by mm-hmm. editing and things are completely out of your control. Live theater, you are an integral part of the success of the experience every single night. In TV and film, I mean, you're important. You guys don't say the words, so they sound like they're coming out of your mouth, but there's so many other variables that take over the work you've done after. I do. I'm very appreciative of uh, uh, of the immediate importance of being alive at stage. Yeah, and I think I think it's that tight wire act as well that audiences appreciate. You know that you have to be absolutely present at every moment when you're on stage, even when you're not speaking, even when you're in the background or whatever. That that's yeah. You really do. Uh, I can remember. I, I was sort of the patron of that cast of Billy Elliot and uh, I I did uh, uh, assume the responsibility of reminding younger cast members who if and when they got bored didn't care or said you know I don't care if my Jordy accident no one's really going to know and it's like actually people are paying a lot of money Mm -hmm. to get the best for for the best possible experience and if you're phoning it in you're over in that corner making a joke with some other ensemble member, and you take an audience member out of the world that, we're, that so, so many people have worked so hard to create, but you take them out, you're, you're actually robbing them. Mm-hmm. You're actually stealing from their experience. So if you don't want to do that and honor uh, the gift of being responsible for that every night, maybe you should go find another job. Mm-hmm. That's what I think. No, it's, it's really important. Um, 
Yeah, I think it's true. Maybe some some young actors that uh, they do see as a stepping stone, maybe for other more lucrative mediums or whatever it is. And um, in terms of teachers, because you mentioned Juilliard, what was some of the you know, when you were starting out, and you as someone who came from, you know, outside Detroit, um, someone, you know, just new to this whole acting world, and the thrill of arriving at Juilliard, which is a, um, just an amazing school, what, what, what teachers, and also um, your colleagues there, you know, what were, you, what, were, what, what were your first plays there? What were you learning? What did they make sure to impart? I, I just saw on, on Facebook, um, Marion Seldes, uh-huh. who was uh, just an, am- an amazing teacher. That, uh, she was just quoted on Facebook. It was a quote from Marion about her responsibility she, that I'd never read before. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, was, she, she directed what was called the Discovery Project. It was the very first play that you did in your first year. Mm-hmm. And it was very bare bones, you know, no sets. And it was basically you, maybe a cape and a box, but you, you know, it's but it's the first time that your class works together on a project. We did Troilus and Cressida, wow. really light <laughs> contemporary fare. <laughs> um, uh, but she's she's the person who, who's like who was in the room with you and, and just sort of encouraged us to go where we were going, just to find out who we were because it was the first time we'd all ever worked together. But Marion saw this. She was the first director teacher for me, and then I was blessed with, in 2010, the year after I'd won the Tony Award, I was a presenter for the Tonys for the, the, the hour, pre-hour, mm-hmm. to the broadcast, and I got to bring her on stage and present her with her uh, Lifetime Achievement Tony, mm. uh, which just was the greatest mm-hmm. honor for me mm-hmm. to be a part of, because she was so integral. She coincidentally was married to Garson Kanan, who... Uh, wrote the first um, successful Broadway play that I was in, which, which was the revival of Born Yesterday with Madeline Kahn and Asner. And Marion was there in rehearsals as, you know, like my little guardian angel, mm-hmm. being there in the little milestones of my career. She, she just, just literally today, this thing about Marion on Facebook just came up. So that, that was a fun memory. But um, at the end of each year, at Juilliard, because I'd already done, I already, I, I'd, I'd done two and a half years at the University of Michigan. Hmm. I went originally wanting to be a stage actor, theater major. Folks said no, so I was a communications major with a minor in physics, which I also enjoyed because I loved blowing things up. And um, I worked at a t- the, the University Public Access TV station there at Ann Arbor. I was failing all the physics required courses because I was in classes with people that are now our, our world scientists and they were doing in their heads in class what would take hours of study for me. And every moment I had, I was auditioning for every non-department um, performing opportunity. I was in the dormitory jazz ensemble as a trombone player and singer. I, I started a dance company there. I auditioned for the sophomore run, produced, directed show. Um, it, all I did was theater, and then it took about a year for me to finally go, okay, this yeah. is, I wake up in the morning and do this. So then I, got, then I started, I actually was part of one of the founding class members of the, what is now the University of Michigan Musical Theater Program. Um, but the moment that got underway, I, my, all my teachers here said, you should really be going somewhere. You need to go, some, you need to, go to conservatory. You need to go somewhere a little more serious. And I ended up auditioning for Juilliard. That's how I ended up getting in there. So what would have been my fourth year at Michigan ended up being my first year at Juilliard. So it took me seven years to get my BFA. But at the end of the first year at Juilliard, uh, Robert Neff Williams, who's one of our voice teachers, you do a thing called, it's called the, uh, what's it called? Critiques. And in class, at the literally last day of Juilliard, they take the large, the largest classroom, the teachers all sit around the entire perimeter in a chair with a one shirt facing them. And you go from one faculty member to the next until you've seen them all, and then you leave the room. It's just for them to impart whatever they want to impart with you before you go away for the summer. And in the fir- after the first two years, they really don't want you doing any other theater. They want you to go do anything except theater because they just want the things that 
they're working on it for the first two years just to kind of resonate with you and not, so you don't, I think, in my head, I'm thinking, so you don't go back and just keep practicing all the old habits, mm-hmm. you know, until the new stuff has a chance to kind of, you know, shake you up and redefine you. But Robert Neff Williams, at the end of the first year, says to me, he goes, uh, you need to date other women. <laughs> You know, I want to go, what? <laughs> what? Wait, you're not my dad. Wait, what? And then, but, the, but I knew better because he's a very, you know, he's a man of few words. He's very serious, but loving and caring teacher. But that's what he said. And I was like, okay, moving on. Well, I didn't. I was still dating a girl that I moved to New York with from Ann Arbor, Michigan. End of second year, he says, Without any judgment or, or discussing what he had said last year, he goes, get a dog. And I went, okay, moving on. Now, in hindsight, <laughs> after, long, after I've left, he, what, and what I know now is m- m- my um, reservoir of life knowledge, of yeah. understanding of human suffering, of the struggle of loving and taking care of someone else, that responsibility... Those are things that in, that make your heart bigger, that help mm-hmm. you, that make you more human. And though I was I was being taken care of by a wonderful woman when I moved to New York. And he knew that I needed to have the other woman so I could have less ideal scenarios because mm-hmm. I needed some pain conflict, in my life. Yeah. Help it, conflict helped it better inform me as a human being. And when he thought that wasn't happening, he knew, all right, maybe getting a dog because the responsibility of taking care of an animal, blah, 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 that'll be important. So what he, you know, he was just like cutting with the chase. Reader's mm-hmm. Digest. He's not going to try and explain it. He just mm-hmm. goes, here, do this. That's what you need at this point in your life as an actor. And he was right. Mm-hmm. But I wasn't able to hear it, see it, or did I do what he said? I think it's a valuable lesson, and I don't know it so much. I mean, I write and I paint. I'm an artist. And so, so I can understand from that point of view. And I really f- think... It's not just the all those hours that you spend in the academy or at school or whatever. When you think you're working, it's often all those hours that when you're supposed to be off. You know, you're unconscious. You know, even in your dreaming, when you work out all the problems and the things that, in a way, you know, forms you as a as a person, but then also as an artist. They can do the heavy lifting for you. I, I mean, I believe. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It just made me love him all the more in hindsight. Mm-hmm. He passed, sadly, a couple of years ago. Uh-huh. But I remember I, I would always cite that experience with him. Mm-hmm. And in, in addition to the amazing classwork that he did, a tremendous teacher. Yeah. But it was like, oh, this guy, he's still, how, I was very fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. They were really special teachers. No, that, no, but that shows a great deal of insight because they're just not looking at you when you're on the stage. They're considering you as a whole person and then you as a whole person can give a whole performance, like a whole, yeah. My name is Brett Young, an associate interviewer and podcast producer here at The Creative Process. Like many other native New Yorkers, I've been lucky enough to have had several trips to Broadway over the years. But growing up in the 21st century, Many of us forget these visually stunning, well-crafted performances. Though as I look back on the first half of this interview, I can't really help but to think of not having the privilege of seeing these live performances. It's been a few years since I've last seen a live play, and in the midst of this current pandemic, it seems like it will be a while longer until any of us are able to return. In the meantime, we have vast catalogs of films and TV shows to comb through. But as Gregory described his admiration for performing live theater, he had me reflecting on the unique form of entertainment that it provides. He explains how it's an art form that is born out of a performer's presence in front of his or her audience. We tend to forget how it's an experience that evolves with every iteration, being tweaked in the most minute ways. Hearing him explain the changes him and his castmates made to the accents of his Tony Award-winning performance in Billy Elliot was something that the average viewer of the show Peaky Blinders could very much appreciate. Unlike in television, theater has the uncanny ability to be tailored to the audience it's being presented to. As he expressed to Mia, live theater offers actors the ability to garner an immediate reaction from the audience. 
It's one of the few mediums, aside from sports and music events, which offer this sort of conversation between the star and their audience. It may not be as obvious a reaction as something you would find at Madison Square Garden, but it's still an opportunity for the actor to gauge how their performance is being received. Jabara reminded me of an interview with one of the original actors that performed as Father Flynn in the play Doubt. He had mentioned that, due to the open-ended nature of the story and the intense struggle the audience undergoes in determining if his character is guilty, the actor expressed that with each performance, he would actively try to measure how he felt the audience was reacting, tailoring his performance in a different way that would keep them on their toes. Obviously, in an age of cinema and television, this rich experience can tend to be forgotten. Gregory does do a brilliant job of reminding me why large productions like Wicked, Book of Mormon, and Lion King remain so memorable. But even a solo performance can also remain memorable. There is a relationship with an actor, and that's something that can't be replicated in a recorded performance. Though one of the biggest things that struck me was Gregory's additional reminder that his job is to be a storyteller, not just simply a character in a narrative. I think that, in particular, is what separates Broadway talents, like Gregory Jabara, from the stars of Hollywood and television. With the way he describes the personal connection that comes from performing in plays, it makes me appreciate ever more the opportunity to experience a live theater production. There will always be that intangible aspect to it which talents like Gregory provide. Have you done some teaching as well? Uh, no, like I, I haven't felt the calling mm -hmm. to teach, but I do love talking about my journey. Mm -hmm. So yeah. uh, I, I get invited to do master classes. I'll like I'll answer questions uh -huh. and talk about specific things, like what experiences I've had professionally that mm -hmm. I think are valuable, just as something to hold up to. As a, mm -hmm. But but I don't. I haven't. Um, my life isn't where I'm. Like it's not a calling. Mm -hmm. a teacher. But I do love sharing anecdotally things that I think are, you know, helpful, especially from a professional level, because there's so many unknowns. How do you deal with the audition process or finding the courage? I mean, particularly in the beginning, but I guess, you know, there, it, there's always maybe something like that involved, even, you know, I, I don't know if it's a routine or whatever. how do you overcome, I don't want to say fears, but whatever, how do you, you get into the, the skin immediately? Yeah. 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 The more you do, the more you realize, well, the more you learn how to be successful in the room. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think it's just been over time. I mean, early days, I, I, I'm a people person. Mm -hmm. So I think that has helped me. Because mm -hmm. I know that ultimately people are going, you know, there are a million people that can do the job. Mm -hmm. They're like going, who, who walks in the room that also is comfortable in their own skin. It's not going to be a toxic. It's not going to suck the life out of everyone. It's not going to be easy. Who's actually going to be able to be a contributor? You know, so uh, being happy mm -hmm. with yourself, I think, has been as, as important. And gratefully, I think I've always brought that into the room. Like, mm -hmm. I, I, I haven't had a, a lot of baggage that I think uh, makes people, you know, red flags go up and they go, oh, boy. Very talented, and you know, I, I, I'm a hard worker. So mm -hmm. I think from the very beginning, understanding that people really are going to, you know, we're going to spend three months or five years with this person. Yeah, think somebody I want to hang out with, and, and that you know that's an amazing, that's an that's a lot to accomplish in a very short audition process. But it really, you know, you can tell. And and I also had the opportunity to work as a reader. When I was a student at Juilliard, I was a reader for auditions for um, Simon and Schumann Casting, who was one of the prominent Broadway and TV and film casting directors in New York. So yeah. I got to see from the other side oh. how what the thought process is, what the difference is between walking in the door and already getting the job before you open your mouth yeah. to the people who, have, who, are, who are immediately sabotaged the moment they've entered the space. You know what I mean? So. There were many, a lot of opportunities that, I don't know, 
I guess someone said, hey, there was a work-study job. There was a work-study opportunity. That's what it was. And I went, yeah, I want to do it. No, but that's, that's very smart. I mean, I can only imagine. I mean, that's invaluable to hear the behind-the-scenes conversations and even to know, even when a good performance uh, might be coming, to know that, oh, maybe that job's already given to someone else or, like, that they're just tired at the end of the day just to see, just to think from their perspective, you know? Yes, yes. And uh, what was uh, one of the Simon and Cumin experiences where they were cast recasting for Bright Beach Memoir? Uh-huh. And I was a reader for that on Broadway back in you know the early '80s, and um, they offered me the national tour as a reader. Uh-huh. Uh, Neil Simon and um, I wasn't even auditioning, but they spent the whole day watching me read opposite of all these other. And they went, "You're actually perfect for this. We t- we want to offer you the job." And I was like, going, first of all, thinking, "Wow, this is outstanding." Here I have Manny Eisenberg, that's Manny yeah. Eisenberg producer, and Neil Simon standing, getting up out of their chairs, walking to the front stage, saying, hey, we think, we think you're the guy. <laughs> and I'm going, wow, thank you, that's great. But I still have a year, uh, I have to finish my third year, and I have another year to go. So I need to finish. And then when I'm done, the job's still there. I would love to do it. And they kind of went, oh. I mean, I don't, actually, I don't know. They said, okay. But... I was like that. I also had that. Do you, re- do you regret that then? Did you didn't get to be a part of it, or did you get to be a part of that? Oh no, no, it was the right thing to do. My belief is, from my experience, there'll always be work. I mean, as long as you have the 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 privilege of the opportunity to be considered for work, mm-hmm. if you, you know, the opportunity to keep throwing yourself at projects, or the opportunity to go and try and sell yourself. But there's you're always going to find a way to make a buck. But I, I needed to finish that school. It was it was it was a very safe. Mm-hmm. It was a safe, and then you know to have the completion and a degree. It really was for my parents. Mm-hmm. They were you know their heads were they palmed the forehead when I left Michigan. I dropped out mm-hmm. before I got into Juilliard. They were like, oh no, he's not, he's not finishing something once again. So. It was like, okay, this is very validating. I know that I'm marketable. That someone thinks I can be, I mean, I'm worthy of working on a national tour of Broadway show. That's great. We've got another year to go. And then we'll, and the upside was, you know, you know, you know that you're in New York City. Your, everything you do your last two years there is being seen by everybody in the industry. So you're like served up on a platter. If you actually get to graduate from the program, you don't get cut um, you're going to have a career, unless you are self-loathing I, I, or uncomfortable in your own skin. I, I can honestly say that there are members of my class and other previous and past classes before and after me that were more talented than I am, but they couldn't, they couldn't audition. They, mm-hmm. The anxiety, uh, they're, they come off as rude or distant or it's like you know uh and, and they're they're phenomenal actors they're tremendous actors like much more talented than I, but they couldn't succeed in the audition gratefully not my problem right and temperament is so a temperament a good work ethic being open to being prepared to have rejection and failure it's so important oh yeah i uh my my youngest brother, I remember early days, said, man, your agents aren't working hard enough for you. I'm like going, you don't know. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I appreciate your passion. I'm happy where I'm at. Mm-hmm. I know I make, I'm feeding myself as an actor. I work all the time. That's amazing. You're not in itself. It, it's not, yeah, I don't need to be some big star. Mm-hmm. Like this is it. We're talking, we're talking the late 80s. Mm-hmm. You should be a big star, Greg. It was like, you know, he wasn't in the office with the head of my agent at the time. He said, you're great, but you're not Tom Cruise. You're the other guy, mm-hmm. you know, the other more interesting, you know, you're not the leading man guy. You're the interesting sidekick guy. Mm-hmm. That's who you are. And I was like going, that makes sense to me. That's mm-hmm. great. There's someone who, who's been in the business forever. And he goes, that's who you are. And that's how we're going to, and, and he goes, when you're 45, that's when you're going to hit your peak. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's character, mental trajectory. Yeah. That's, that was in my head. That's what they told me. That's what my expectation was. I always, you know, worked always hard. And it was great. Everything I did and great work got me more and developed great relationships. But I knew that it was going to happen, that my time wasn't, you know, that stuff is like, that's, a, that's just sort of like magic dust mm-hmm. going, you know, become superstardom. You know what I mean? Um, and that wasn't for me. And it can be so limiting as well, you know, like leading man or leading woman or being put in a box because you're sexy or something, you're an image, you know. I think that people love great character actors or people who have versatility. I mean, just look at the the range of your roles from like, you know, law enforcement to like musical theater to all these things. And that's that's a gift. I don't think that that's what big stars want (laughs) and they can, they're boxed in. And when I, right, and, and look, I mean, the, the Billy Flynn, that mm-hmm. was handsome leading man. Exactly. But it wasn't, you know, that was when I was in my 40s. Mm-hmm. 14, yeah, 15 years ago. That's a fantastic role. I can't imagine. I mean, it's yeah. just a second dream. Yeah. So yeah, tell yeah. me, I meant to ask you about Neil Simon, stories about Neil Simon. Uh, what, what was. Oh, here, here's another great Neil Simon story. Uh, you know, rest his soul. Um, he, he had this idea that he wanted to read. He wanted to contemporize the odd couple. Mm-hmm. So, and he and he called it Felix and Oscar. Mm-hmm. And he mounted it at the uh, Kevin Playhouse here in Los Angeles while I was here. And I got cast in the role of Vinny, who's one of the, you know, who in the movie and in the original play is kind of an overweight nebbish mm-hmm. um, with glasses. But they cast me. Um, but um, I wasn't doing a, I auditioned. Peter bon- Bonners was the director of those, and I auditioned for him and Gil Cates, who was running the Catholic Theater at the time. And I, I don't think, I don't think I did a heavy, I didn't do a heavy New York accent. I, I came in with me, but with the vulnerability of that character. And they went, great, we like you, you're hired. Then we do that, we do the table read, and we read through. And at the end of the, ta- and Neil's there with his wife, and at the end of the table read. Peter Bonners takes me aside after and goes, um, Neil doesn't think you're New York enough. And I went, you mean he wants like a, a heavy New York accent? Or a buddy? He goes, yeah, he goes, you don't sound like a New Yorker. And I go, all right, well, I can I can do a New York accent, but that's kind of like sort of result-oriented. Or, and that's not what I auditioned with, but he goes, he goes when we do the read-through tomorrow morning, can you bring me, because he goes, Neil has in his head that there have to be really big character differentiations, just musically, mm-hmm. in their voice. And I go, okay, I hear that, I get that, I can do that. All right, I'll come in tomorrow morning and I'll give you my my sort of nebbish, finny, sort of derivative performance. Mm-hmm. And I came, he goes, and, and Peter goes, otherwise I think Neil's going to ask to replace you. And I went, oh, wow, I've never ever I'm going to get fired before. So it, it stung, but I but I went, okay, that's what I got to do. Deep breath, kind of ran through my head, did my cliche, mm-hmm. New York, you know, Nebuchadnezzar, New York guy. <laughs> Came in, did the read. Neil was beat beside himself, loved it, fantastic, great. You are the guy. I was like, oh my God. Why do we have to like, like this is a rehearsal process. Can't we just we kind of work our way to the end result but now the boss needs to see it right there because he wasn't in the room and for the audition but it was it was fascinating yeah but i had to i had to do a dog and pony show for for neil simon to keep that job turns out that production can't be contemporized mm-hmm. it is it's about man in the 60s and the sexism and the limited technology there was so much humor and and struggle it came from the fact that rooms, had, phones had to be in different rooms. Telephones. Mm-hmm. Telephones have to be in rooms, and you have to not know who's on the other side, on the, who's on the line with you for a lot of the humor. Yeah. You can't do it with a cell phone. Mm-hmm. A lot of the humor goes out the You can't. It's not logical. I know who you are because I can see your name. And I can walk to the other room. So I don't have to yell at somebody from across the house. It's like 
can't be done. You either got to completely reconceive it. And so we they ended up we ended up losing cell phones and putting in hard line phones. And we ultimately it was basically just a retelling of the same play. Yeah. Although the things they tried to contemporize, they, they landed flat, fell flat. Interesting journey. Just uh, listening to you describe the uh, the casting process. How important would you say listening is? I mean, I know that's a really simple question, but in terms of getting roles, in terms of collaborating with your cast, with your directors, and you know, the, I mean, taking direction is listening, mm -hmm. uh, and then being able to implement it. I mm -hmm. think. Listening is vital in the in the creative process. Mm -hmm. uh, in that, there's a lot of discovery that has to happen. Not just in a stage production, even uh, working on our on the TV show. There have been times when Tom Tom Selleck would say, "Wow, that person really rehearsed really hard, yeah. and they know all their lines, and they've made all the decisions about how they're going to play that role, and they locked it in before they went to bed last night, mm -hmm. and that's all they're doing today, mm -hmm. and they're not really working with us. They're kind of doing the same choices every single take, yeah. and that's." Gratefully, something I learned not to do. You also always say yes during Billy Elliot. There was a cast member who simply didn't know how to go. The director would say, hey, what about, let's try this. Rehearsal comes to a screeching halt and it starts a 20-minute debate on why that actor thinks this character wouldn't do that. Mm -hmm. Instead of, just try it once. Mm -hmm. Just try it. That'll take two minutes. And the director can either go, oh, you're right, I was out of my mind. Or the actor might go, oh, hmm. And then we can move on. But literally, every time. And this person almost lost their job. Mm -hmm. Because they that just wasn't in their toolbox. Mm -hmm. Literally, their thing was, I'd rather discuss it. Um, curiously... Julie Andrews working with Blake on Victor Victoria. Oh, you you were in Victor Victoria. I yes. I also originated the role of Spock Bernstein in the Broadway production of Victor Victoria. Wow. It was it was interesting when because Blake Edwards directed the production, and when Blake wanted to try something new with Julie, um, she wouldn't she didn't want to do it in rehearsal with everybody around. I think and this is my. This is my sort of assessment. It's only because she cared so much about everything that she did being right mm -hmm. that I think the idea of failing or floundering for a bit to find it was not a comfort place for her. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was interesting to her. That's just my observation. But it wasn't that... She wasn't like this other actor I was referring to who just said, mm -hmm. you know, just puts a wall up and says, I think that's a bad idea. To, um, it, it was more about she wants to make sure that everything that she does has been thought through and is right before she does it, even in rehearsal. Yeah. I got a chance to I got a chance to meet her in the Hamptons. I think she's such a lovely person. Um, but it might just be also if she if, if she does something that she feels is a bit off that then perhaps that reverberates into the rest of the cast because if Julie isn't at ease or whatever. Yes, I, I yeah. do. I think it's, it's out of a, a, a sense of responsibility. Yeah. Definitely. But also protecting, I mean, she's a, she's a, she's iconic. Yes. But, but conversely, she's got a truck driver, you know, sense of humor and <laughs> loves you know, when when we're not, when she doesn't have to be on and she's in a safe environment, she is blue and <laughs> funny and body and inappropriate and you love her all the more. Uh, but I do, I think, yeah, it's, there's something, there's a bit of a shackle. Mm -hmm. Leading the troops, you know, like she has to be, you know. Right. I think Tom, Tom Selleck also holds that very, he feels responsibility <laughs> how he is perceived. He's a very private man. Mm -hmm. But he he did a he pulled a stunt on Craig Ferguson mm -hmm. with some body humor. The thing that we pre-taped that, that I was so impressed he figured out how to pull it off. That that um, a 
law office at CBS allowed us to use this footage as a, as a preview clip on Craig Ferguson. Mm-hmm. And we wrote, it's a it's a thing that Tom always loves, it's a joke he, he Tom goes, I always had this idea for a new uh, Western TV series called, um, now it's been up, there was a man with big hands. It was about a, it was about a frontier proctologist who had large hands. <laughs> and that was the conflict. And he always thought that was funny. And then we were we were shooting a scene in the conference room at the commissioner's office, and Tom goes, "Let's." We, it was me and Victor Slezak, who's a, mm-hmm. a wonderfully accomplished stage and TV and film actor, and another actress name is escaping me. And we were all sitting there around the table, and we wrote lyrics to what the what the theme song would be for this. And then Tom goes, "This is great. I want to see this on the Craig Ferguson. We'll we'll show this as our clip." Because he goes, "That's Craig Ferguson's audience. You know, they're a little edgier and you know, yeah. late late night." So he got he got his wrist slapped, his hand slapped by his press rep after he did it, mm-hmm. because she goes, mm, "That's that's not the Tom Selleck that we want to be presenting." Mm. You know, potty humor, Tom Selleck. We you worked very hard to be Tom Selleck, mm-hmm. and she goes, "I think that's important to protect that." And yeah. I was like, like, "Wow, that's that's interesting." But he had such great fun doing it. He was giggling like a like a teenager going, "Oh, I can't wait to be a uh, have some potty humor on TV." What do you, What do you feel about? And I don't want to keep you too long. I was wondering if you might end on a song if you wanted to. I don't know. It just oh. <laughs> I didn't want to spring it on oh, you, but no. improvised. Oh. <laughs> it doesn't have to be about the proctologist with large hands, but. Uh... Oh, good. <laughs> good. Yeah. You're my wife. <laughs> no, I mean, if you don't want to, maybe we could maybe we could cut one in. You know what I do have is I have a I have a bootleg. I'll uh-huh. send you an MP3 bootleg uh-huh. of uh, of me singing Billy Flynn and oh. holding that high note forever. Oh wow, that that would be brilliant. It's really fun. Introduce it right here, and then we'll drop it in. So this is uh, please nobody tell the Weislers producers of Chicago <laughs> that when I was doing the uh, when I was doing Chicago in Vegas at mm-hmm. the Mandalay Bay as a parting gift the um, but I was I happened to be handed a recording of my final performance and so here's a little snippet of me as Billy Flynn at the Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas way back in 19 probably 99 wow <laughs> that's a that that's that's a lovely performance. It's great to have that bootleg and all. You know, this is educational initiative, so I do like to finish on a, a question about the future. And um, you know, we're living in uh, difficult times, and uh, education and technology and the environment—it's all coming to a bubble. But as you reflect on um, the future and the kind of world we're leaving our children. What are some ways you think that you'd like to um, you change some of our current systems? What could we add to them to make them better? Uh, there has to be... I don't think humans know how to respectfully use the technology. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there is, with an absence of punctuation or inflection or um, everyone, when they read something, they imbue it with their own personal, through the lens of their mm-hmm. own personal experience. So I, I, there's um, and then people also sort of share ideas about other people, mm-hmm. and without thinking of the consequence of the ripple effect of what they say. I'm only just recently uh, aware of that. I think that the, I think society needs an education, a, a healing. I think I think a healing would take place if people learned how to communicate using chat or technology the, the absence of human connection and the absence of facts first um, are, are is something we need to figure out a way to get beyond I think a lot of people that don't know how uh, I think people who base their existence on trust um, are being exploited mm-hmm. and, and I would love to figure out a way how to uh, stop that um, because I think that if, if we could all learn how to love and appreciate each other uh, I think then we would all understand the value of changing the way we're killing ourselves especially the behavior like just the concept that staying home is not about you it's really about you respecting the lives of others it's really hard a lot of people don't even go there like don't it's 
not even a, it's not even in a reflex though, because there's other things that I think get in the way. They become defensive or feel like they're, that life is oppressing them again. And, and somehow we have to, we have to heal that. Um, but ultimately, if we can fix that, heal that, then I think the earth would be better taken care of. I think human beings would take better care of each other. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think the technology has helped. I don't think it's a part of our education, this humankind. It, it's moved so quickly that we as human beings don't really see how it, how hurtful it I think it's a valuable tool. It's, it's invaluable, but it, it it can also be highly destructive, kind of like gun. You know? No, I think that that's a very um, interesting and important point. And finally, what have the arts given you? You know, in your life. You know, I, I thought very seriously about this because mm-hmm. you're, you know, the, the the theme of your conversations and the topic of, of in your group creative process, <laughs> and you being an artist. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I am an artist. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, I can't say that like I, would, I always went, oh, I'm an artist, mm-hmm. that's what I want to be. It was like, I, being in a, being in a choir, being in a band, uh, you know, playing an instrument, I play it uh, growing up, zillions of brasses and percussion. So it was just being a part of a group. All those things were kind of a regular part of my existence, of my formative years. And I've always appreciated it. My kids appreciate music, although it's very different than what I appreciate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, but um, uh, art, I, I think I fell into art. I, I, like I wasn't, I, I didn't, I guess the term of art, being an artist, uh, for me it's like, it's like a, it needs to be a part of everyone's life. Mm-hmm. And then when there are, there are, you know, um, there are a lot of people that don't or, or don't know how to see art, even mm-hmm. nature, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't say I ever went around growing up going, oh, I want to be an artist, but now as an adult, as, mm-hmm. as the world becomes harder, um, your artwork, the, mm-hmm. some, some of your paintings, like you're, you're, they force me to go, who is that face? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know who that man is and what's going on in that painting. The story is going on. I have, to, I have to go research that. Like that's phenomenal. Um, you know, th- that's that's education. Uh, uh, I don't remember what the question was about art. What have the arts can, given you? Squash it. Yeah. What has it given me? Yeah. How? What is the importance of the arts? Well, I think it's made me a whole person uh. who knows how to work with other people. You know, I, I guess I didn't have solitary. I, I, I mean, my art has always been in sort of group stuff. Yeah. I'm not a I'm not a solitary artist. Uh, I'm I, I I need to be. I'm a social. I, I need to be around people, and I like the sound of applause, and I like team success, athletics. But, so art art uh, taught me to appreciate. Uh, importance of human respect and understanding how we're, we're all connected. I mean, but, but it wasn't, I wasn't conscious of it. Now, as, as you're asking me, subconsciously, that's a part of who I am, the importance, and art gave me that, an understanding, an appreciation. Well, I think that, that, I think that that's everything, really. I mean, other people, and we're all appreciating that more these days, um, how we need each other, and um, and I think that uh, that's a very important insight. You said that we have to widen our sense of community. It's not just our immediate family, our immediate city. Um, what we do here at one side of the world affects um, those in the other, and uh, we're all living through that now. And so I, I want to, I think it's a beautiful thing that you and your community of actors and directors and all the behind the scenes people who go the invisible artists behind the scenes who go into making television and film and theater and musicals um, are are all integral to that and it's just like a metaphor of the world really so I I think that's really important and um, and as we're all seeing uh, in recent days uh, we need the arts to hold on to our sanity I, I think everyone is appreciating that very much. So. You are medicine, in other words, <laughs> I think. Thank you. 
I feel the same about you. <laughs> what limited exposure I've had to what you've done. Thank well, you. Well, thank you. Well, thank you. I also want to thank you, um, Gregory Jabara, for your the wealth of characters across the television and, and sta stage and screen, um, and for your message of um, for the global community. Uh, thank you for adding your insights into acting and the importance of listening. Uh, thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviewer and producer on this podcast was Brett Young. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anandolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved in our exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works, just drop us a line at team at creative process dot info.